Good morning again, everyone. Uh, welcome those of you who are joining us a little bit later um, today as we continue in our sermon series, uh, Knots by Bread Alone, uh, where we explore how true transformation and true satisfaction can only be found in Christ alone. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about Nicodemus's confusion, how Jesus asks Nicodemus to kind of step outside of his Jewish cultural box and to truly embrace a new identity of being born from above by being found in Christ alone. And as we move forward, we're going to see Jesus begin to confront another situation, a lot like Nicodemus, but kind of from a different angle, where Jesus begins to cross multiple boundaries. Rather than asking Nicodemus to step outside of his box, Jesus crosses multiple boundaries in order to bring restoration and healing into a person's life. But before we talk about healing and transformation, um, I want to talk about a book that probably many of us read when we were children. Um, while I was going through college, there was a period of time where I was ex experiencing deep emotional and spiritual depression. And there was one book, um, which although isn't entirely Christian, but has Christian themes, this one book brought restoration, into my soul at least. And that's the book, The Secret Garden. Um, I don't know if you guys have read that before, but maybe you have, maybe uh, quite a long time ago. But for those who haven't read it, or maybe read it a few decades ago, it's about a young girl named Mary Lennox, who lives or lived in India. Now, unfortunately, Mary, she was not loved by her parents, but, and she also had no friends, and also no one would associate with her. She was left alone um, with no one to turn to. Uh, but when cholera broke out in India, she lost both of her parents and their estates, and she had literally nothing to turn to, no one to turn to, uh, when suddenly she was miraculously instructed to live with her uncle, uncle in England. And this is where things begin to change for Mary. In this estate, Mary, she finds this little secret garden that has been locked away and forgotten for years. Uh, but with the help of her cousin, Colin, and her friend Dickon, they began to bring the garden back to life. And throughout this book, this garden was actually neglected. It was run down. It was overgrown with weeds. And it was also a reflection of Mary's own soul. But as Mary experiences unconditional love from her friends and from her cousin, uh, things begin to change. They would talk together. They would dream together. They would go out and play with one another. And for Mary, this was unthinkable because one year ago, she spent her entire childhood absolutely alone, locked up with no family, no friends to talk to. And so when Mary finally experiences what true unconditional love was, a love that looked beyond the surface and into someone's heart, her heart began to heal. And as these three friends gathered together, they began to transform not just Mary's hearts, but the secret garden that was once run down into a beautiful garden where birds would nest and flowers would grow. And as the garden was transformed, we begin to see that Mary's heart was transformed as well. And so we see that one of the purposes of this simple children's book is to remind us of the transformative power of relationships. That just as Mary and her friends were transformed by love and friendship, we also can be transformed when we recognize that we are shown an even greater love and friendship 
by Jesus. As we turn to our passage today, uh, we see a very similar theme of love and transformation that looks beyond the surface and looks into a person's heart. And in this story, Jesus encounters a woman at a well and offers her a gift of living water, symbolizing the transformative power of a relationship with God. And just as Mary experiences unconditional love and friendship in this little secret garden, uh, we're about to see that the woman's experience at the well also parallels this as she experiences unconditional love from God through her encounter with Jesus. So let's take a look at our passage today from John chapter 4, uh, verses 6 to 26. There's a little bit of reading, so bear with me. Now, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did all his son and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirits and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirits, and his worshipers must worship in the spirits and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. As we come to our passage today, there are several barriers and several boundaries that Jesus not just passes, but completely looks through. And the reason why Jesus looks through or looks past these boundaries is because it teaches us what God truly looks at when he sees us. So let's take a look at that in our first point today of overcoming barriers. Now, in the story of the woman at the well in John 4, Jesus crosses significant barriers in order to reach out to her. First, there is the socio-ethnic boundary between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, the Jews and Samaritans, they had a long history of conflict and prejudice towards each other, and it was 
very, very, very uncommon for a Jew to speak to a Samaritan, let alone a rabbi like Jesus to speak to a Samaritan. Yet Jesus disregards this boundary and reaches out to the woman, showing that he's not ashamed to be seen with her despite the societal norms and expectations of the time. So that's the first one, the socio-ethnic boundary. The second is the gender boundary. Now, in society during that time, men did not talk alone with women or vice versa because they kind of feared what sort of message that would bring if anyone kind of saw them. Like, oh, why is that guy talking with that woman all alone at the well? You see, the thing is, we can't forget that Jesus' culture at that time was bound by honor and shame. And so for people to kind of gossip about you talking to women would bring shame upon you as a teacher, as a rabbi. No one would want to listen to you or trust what you have to say if the word around town is that you are too forward with the opposite sex. But finally, I think the most important boundary that Jesus crosses is the moral boundary. See, in our passage, we learn that she had five husbands, and the current man she is seeing is not even married to her. Now, during that time, it was extremely uncommon for a woman to initiate a divorce, and so the general assumption here is that this woman has been divorced by five separate men, which indicated to the people around her that there must be something seriously wrong with this woman, that on a human level, something just didn't add up with her. And on top of that, the man that she's currently seeing now doesn't even want to grant her the legal protection of marriage, which shows that even the man she's seeing does not want to associate or be seen with this woman publicly. In fact, not only did the men refuse to associate with this woman, but even the rest of her neighbors, of her community, refused to associate with her. Earlier in the passage, we actually see that the woman is drawing water in the middle of the day, which is a little unusual, right? If, if you lived during that time and you had a well, well, the first thing you do when you wake up is you go to the well, you get all the water you need for the day, and you go back home before the sun's up, you know, before it's 1,000 degrees outside. No one really wants to go out in the middle of the day when the sun is at its peak, when it's 100 degrees. No one does this. And this is why, in the story, we actually find her all alone at the well. She realized and she recognized that she was shamed for who she was and what she has done. And so to avoid the shame, she waits. She waits till all of her neighbors have gotten their water and gone back home. And in the middle of the day, while everyone is indoors in the shade, she quickly goes out to get water all by herself. And what's particularly striking about the story is the unconditional love of God that Jesus embodies. That despite the barriers that exist between this woman and Jesus, he reaches out to her with love and with compassion. That despite the fact that no one wanted to associate with her, Jesus is willing to go to her in the middle of the day, in front of the whole world to see, in order to speak to her and give her the gift of living water. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we realize that more often than not, we love conditionally. We actually do not love unconditionally. We love those who obviously do good to us. We associate publicly with those who appear to have no faults. It's a little unnatural for us to befriend and associate 
with people who we think are beneath us. We don't trust those who are unemployed the same way we trust those who are wealthy. We give different amounts of respect to people according to their occupation. And it's unfortunately ingrained in our human nature, in our human lives, to create this sort of pecking order, to know who is on top, who is on bottom, and more importantly, where do we stand on this social ladder? But what we do learn about God is that what he sees and seeks is entirely different. The thing is, we're only in John chapter 4, the beginning of the book for all intents and purposes. We're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the very first person that Jesus seeks in this book is a Samaritan woman, shamed by her people, shamed by the man she is seeing, and shamed by other Jewish rabbis. Last week, Nicodemus came to Jesus, but Jesus intentionally seeks out this woman in order to bring transformation in her soul. He intentionally sought her out. And for believers, I think this has pretty clear practical implications for how we should view ourselves, but also how we should view others as well. Well, first, we should recognize the unconditional love that God has for us, that we are actually all women at the well. We have all sinned. We are all shamed. And by all rights, we do not deserve to know God, but he sought us out intentionally. But secondly, we're also called to embody the same type of love towards others, despite their background, regardless of their background, regardless of what they've done in the past, regardless of their circumstances. And this means that we are to see others through the eyes of God, treating them as people who are made in the glorious image of God rather than judging or condemning them based on social norms or expectations. Now, as the story goes, we learn that Jesus comes to her not, not just to show her radical love and acceptance, that's great, but he also comes to her with a purpose and an intent to radically transform her life by giving her the ultimate gift. In our passage, we see that Jesus offers this woman the gift of living water. And the idea of living water in the book of John is that it's a symbol of eternal life through God's spirit, that just as physical water is most normally something we need every day in order to survive, the gift of living water represents the sum total of all that we need spiritually. And the offer of living water, theologically at least, if you think about it, it's kind of like a three-in-one gift. Through the gift of living water given to us by God, we are first of all, able to experience eternal life. No matter how much physical water we drink, there will come a time where, unfortunately, we will die. Water sustains our life. It doesn't prolong our life, you know, forever. You know, but living water from God, however, grants us an answer to humanity's greatest worry, being death. The never-ending cycle of birth, life, illness, and death is broken as we are granted and given a future that extends beyond our physical death. But at the same time, through the gift of living water, we are also able to experience the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Throughout John, the Spirit of God is described as streams of living water, and the point that Jesus makes is that as we receive God's Spirit, it brings life. It brings rejuvenation. It brings renewal into our lives. 
Last week, we kind of spoke of receiving God's spirit through uh, the gifts of the spirit where we begin to resemble the person and character of God. But as we are receptive to the spirit's leading within our hearts, we're also given the power to overcome sin. Not just through our willpower, not just through our efforts, but as the spirit washes over us, something interesting happens. Sin is no longer appealing. Things that used to tempt us lose their power as we're suddenly freed to live a new life in Christ. But the final thing we receive when we receive this living water is that we also begin to understand what living and abundance and full life is. I find it um, a little funny that there's actually nothing, absolutely nothing, aside from God, there's nothing satisfying in life. If you sit down for a moment and you actually think about it, you know, maybe I'm reading too much Ecclesiastes, but the more and more I think about it, the more true it is. Excitement, happiness is unfortunately temporary, but suffering is temporary as well. Our moods and attitudes change on a dime when we're given good or bad news. One day we're promoted, the next day, the economy turns, and we're unfortunately laid off. Even the food and the water that we drink only satisfy us for so long. And the unfortunate reality is that we have spent our entire lives chasing after things that just give us a temporary hit of pleasure. And in some sense, we're actually no better than drug addicts. Our tastes are simply just a little more refined. But the good news that Jesus presents here, not only to the woman at the well, but also to us as well, is that our search for that one thing that gives us a full and abundant life, that search is now over. Jesus tells her, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. The ultimate transformation that we receive from the living water is a changed life, one that is filled with abundant purpose and meaning. This living water quenches our spiritual thirst and transforms us literally from the inside out, giving us a new heart and a new spirit. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit that indwells us and gives us the power to live a life that is pleasing to God. And with the Holy Spirit in us, we no longer have to search for purpose, for meaning, because it already exists within us. The living water is not just a symbol of physical refreshments, but of spiritual renewal and spiritual transformation. It's a reminder that as believers, we have access to the power of the Holy Spirit and the ability to live a life that is purposeful, meaningful, and most importantly, joyful. What happens to us as we experience this living water flowing within us is that it opens us up to the potential of true worship. In our passage, true worship, it takes on several elements. Um, as Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, he stresses the point that worship is not limited to a temple or some holy mountain. Worship is not limited by cultural or ethnic boundaries either, but true worship comes from the spirit of truth. And the Father seeks such worshipers regardless of how checkered their past is or how awful their circumstance is now. And if all of us 
sitting here today were Jewish, it would actually be a little bewildering if we were to read the Gospel of John as we realize that the very first person to truly worship God in spirit and in truth is this Samaritan woman with all of her baggage. That as she experiences the Holy Spirit and the transformative power of God, she's able to step out for the first time beyond her culture, beyond her shame, and worship God truly, in truth, for the first time. She's no longer held back in the flesh. She's no longer held back by her ethnicity, culture, gender, her sins, or her shames. She has seen the truth of God as she realizes she's talking to the Son of God, and her heart has been set free through the spirits. And so for us, sitting here today, well, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we too have the potential to experience the transformative power of God through the Holy Spirit and through God's truth. It means God's truth and power are for everyone to experience. There are no longer any barriers to worship. Worship is no longer limited by our past or by our circumstances. It's no longer limited by who we were who we, or even who we are today. You don't have to be worthy enough anymore. You don't have to be good enough or holy enough. All we're asked to do is simply to submit our lives to God, pray for the forgiveness of sins, and lay our hearts open to receive this living water into our hearts. And as we do that, we'll begin to experience this transformation within us, just like this woman at the well experienced. We'll start to see the truth of God and the transformative power of the Holy Spirit working within us, freeing us from our past, freeing us from our limitations and our fears. And as that happens, something interesting, of course, happens as well. We can finally come to God to worship him truly as we're totally renewed from the inside out. Worship begins to feel entirely effortless because it comes not just from our hearts, but it also comes from the Holy Spirit living within us as well. I'll be the first to admit, you know, this obviously sounds a little quite abstract, especially when we talk about personal experience, but the reality is, if you don't experience it, you can see or you can witness those around you. You can see the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in your brothers and sisters sitting next to you. You can see it in the way that they love. You can see it in the way that they serve. And you can also see it in the way that they worship God. And so as we completely surrender our lives to God and experience the spirit of truth, I also promise you that it will become less abstract and more of a reality, a lived experience within your life. Now, as we're about to enter into a period of prayer, um, let us pray. Let's pray to be transformed by God. Let us pray also to have the humbleness and the humility to openly acknowledge our past and give it to God in order to receive the forgiveness of sins and the power of the Holy Spirit. But let's also pray to be agents of transformation around us, that as we are personally transformed by God, let us also partner alongside God to transform those around us, to seek good for all, even if, it's not from, even if they're not from our culture or our background. So why don't we come together um, to God? Uh, why don't we come together for a time of prayer? Lord, as we come before you, we want to first thank you 
Uh, we thank you that you do not look at us with the eyes of humanity. You do not judge us by what culture we come from, what our gender is, what our upbringing was. Lord, instead you look straight into our souls and you see what we truly need. Father, we, we confess our, our hearts desire things that are only temporary. We grovel for praise and wealth. We desire to fill our lives with things that ultimately do not satisfy our deepest of needs. And so we confess today that, Lord, we need you. We see this infinitely deep chasm within our hearts, and we ask you, to, we turn to you to humbly request that you will fill us with these streams of living water that will well up into eternal life. Satisfy and transform us, Lord. Honestly, Father, we are so tired of things that do not last, and so we look above to you, knowing that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. And so we thank you, Lord, for your free gift of salvation for the Holy Spirit. We praise you today for the work you have done, the work that you are doing, and the work that you'll continue to do in our lives. We thank you, and we humbly submit our lives into your hands. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.